This is part three on Second Thessalonians 2, 3 through 5. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord that he had just referred to, will not come unless the rebellion comes first, as we talked about last time, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And now we continue. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, when I was still with you, I told you these things? Father, as we focus on son of destruction, that of there, and man of lawlessness, grant, I pray, that we would discern the nature of this person, and we would be alert and able to spot him when he arrives if we are alive. And I pray that the nature of his own character and the nature of his destiny would warn us to cleave to Christ and flee lawlessness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The term man of lawlessness poses the question about what of means, and the term son of destruction poses the question what of means. Let me bring into that discussion this familiar passage from Ephesians 2. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, like a man of lawlessness, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like a son of destruction. Son of disobedience, it's your nature to disobey. Children of wrath, it's your destiny, because of this nature, to be opposed by God with wrath. Let's go back here and think about this. He's a man of lawlessness, and he's a son of destruction. This is his nature, I would argue. And this is his destiny. He is a son of destruction in the sense that it belongs to his very DNA to be destroyed. But it's not arbitrary. He is a man whose nature, he is of lawlessness, as though constituted of lawlessness. Lawlessness is in his very nature and DNA. So he will be destroyed. It's significant then to realize that immediately, as soon as he's introduced, he's introduced as defeated. Right? There may be some terrible things he will do before he's defeated, but he's already done for. 
So Paul is signaling at the very outset, you don't need to fear this man because he is doomed from the outset. It's his very nature to oppose God, and it's his very nature to be destroyed. You know, this term only occurs one other place in the Bible, and it refers to Judas. Jesus is praying in John 17, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, the very same phrase in English and Greek, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Judas was, by his very nature, a supplanter, an an opponent of Jesus. He was a thief. He handed Jesus over. He wanted Jesus out of the way. And so, with that nature, he was a son of destruction. And I can't help but wonder whether Paul, in using the very term that's only used for Judas, intends to say, there is a climactic Judas. There are many Judases along the way in this world, just like there are many lawless people and much rebellion. There are many Judases, but there is coming the final, decisive Judas, who not only opposes, but supplants the God-man and becomes anti-Christ in both senses, anti-opposed and anti-supplant. So he goes on to describe him like this. Who opposes, that's exactly what Judas did. It's written into his very nature as lawless and his destiny to oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat, we'll come back to this next time, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, Judas didn't explicitly do that. This final Judas does. He goes beyond the Judas who opposes against, who opposes uh, every so-called God and every object of worship, including Jesus Christ. And now this lawless one declares himself to be God. Think with me for a moment about the nature of lawlessness. What does that mean? Lawless. So it's a person, a man, who basically has the inner disposition to say, I have no law no authority outside myself as beside myself or above myself. I will not tolerate a law, an authority, beside me, competing with me, or above me, suppressing me. And therefore, he opposes everything that is godlike, everything that poses as something to be worshipped, and finally, 
consistent with lawlessness, he declares himself to be God. Implicitly, everyone who is lawless is claiming to be his own God, right? If you will have no law telling you what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or what your destiny is or what your uh, purpose is on the planet, you are saying, I will be my own God. Thank you very much. I will have nobody telling me what the limits on my identity are, what the limits on my purpose are, what the limits on my view of right and wrong or good and bad or beautiful and ugly. I will decide all of these things in myself. That's the essence of lawlessness. And so this man of lawlessness is doomed for that kind of self-exaltation. He exalts himself, and he shows it by saying, absolutely no God, absolutely no worshipped thing, absolutely no capital G God. I am God. That's what the man of lawlessness rises to. So, in a sense, it's an illustration of where everything sinful in history has been going. It comes to a climax in a a competing God, because that's what we're like if we reject all law. This is, I'll close with this, Matthew 24, 10 to 13, Jesus pictures the time toward the end as lawless. Paul, I think, took these words, and uh, indeed the whole picture of the end time is composed of Jesus' reflections on the prophets and from his own insights as a perfect knower of the end. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. So he's talking about this final rebellion or apostasy, and it comes among Christians, right? He's describing the church here. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness is multiplied or is increased, the love of many will grow cold. Isn't it interesting that he makes lawlessness the ground of love disappearing? So here's what happens when you're lawless and have no authority over you, you begin to betray one another and hate one another. The one who endures to the end will be saved. So we come back now to Paul, and he says, this man is characterized by that kind of lawlessness, and therefore there's a great rebellion in the church against the truth and against each other, and much betraying of each other as the rebellion grows. When a person ceases to have God as his God and makes himself God, he becomes supremely selfish. He is going to exalt himself, which means love becomes impossible. So the love of many grows cold because the man of lawlessness leads this lawless rebellion. It infects the church, and there's a great apostasy, a great betraying, and a great lovelessness.